Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining us at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can click subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, or on YouTube. And uh, every subscriber helps every review that you leave helps and uh it helps grow the audience of the show and i i'm looking forward to this month because i think we've got some really interesting discussions on the way for you can also check out patreon.com backslash sonic cinema um content over there admittedly has been a bit bit slow the past couple months in part because I have a new job I've started so I'm getting into the swing of things as far as what that is going to look like in addition to Sonic Zema but uh, I'm looking forward to continuing series like Leaving the Collection like Life Soundtrack and just going from there that is at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema also this month over at brianscuttle.bandcamp.com, you can pre-order my horror-inspired album, The Cold Wind of Horror, and it releases on Friday the 13th. If you use the promo code HORRORMUSIC uh, for your purchase, you get 15% off the uh, purchase. And there, But there's also, if you'd like to go ahead and get my entire collection the entire filmography discography over bandcamp is available uh and you get 35 percent off of that that is at bandcamp and uh check that out uh chances are you've heard a good number of the pieces over the years attached to the ends of these podcasts and i really am pleased with the way this album turned out i i think it's a really interesting album and i think it's ideal for the month of October. So we are going to pivot a bit in how we approach things this month. Uh, not because of the fact that we are not going to have Phil Faso on. That is going to be my, he is going to be my guest, returning guest today. But be, instead of choosing three movies from a calendar year that has an anniversary this year, to discuss, we are actually going to talk about something of a larger subject, and that is the Semak adaptations of Dracula, of the Bram Stoker novel. Uh, we're going to focus on a few different variations on the uh, Prince of Darkness, but first of all, let me welcome my guest, Phil Faso. Phil, thank you very much for joining me once again. Uh, Brian, you know, it's always a pleasure every time I'm able to join you on Sonic Cinema. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I had a an incredibly busy couple of days at work the past couple of days, and I'm looking forward to uh, kind of winding that down with a podcast. And this one is... This one's an interesting one because it really came about... Us talking about this really came about over the summer um, with the release of The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which is based on one of the chapters in Bram Stoker's uh, novel, Dracula. And I 
and we we kind of I can't remember who it was who pitched this idea, but I think we both basically like the idea of approaching because that is basically a story about Dracula, but it's taken within the context. It was taken out of its context of the overall narrative of Dracula. And um, I really was, I, I decided that this might, I feel like this this was a good way into a different way of us approaching horror discussion. Not necessarily so much in just talking about three films that we either really like or we really don't like from a given year in film, but approaching it from a perspective of the larger legacy of film when it comes to one particular piece of uh, content, and that's Dracula. And I, I think and Dracula, no doubt, has to be one of the more adapted... Um, adapted source works in uh movies and what what are what are your thoughts i mean we we both kind of went on this when talked about it a little bit yesterday and um cuz i started listening to the uh one of the audiobooks on of stoker's novel yesterday during my uh driving and i wanted to uh kind of I guess the first place to start with this is what is it about Dracula that you think has maintained its status as such a durable piece of horror film, horror storytelling that keeps kind of coming around? Well, first off, before I get into that, and I will circle back to that in a second, I'd like to talk about very briefly and give a lament for the death of the undead. So, as you mentioned, we had talked over the summer about the last voyage of the Demeter, which I had hoped would, well, I had hoped it would have been a big hit. And uh, unfortunately, it, it turned out not to be. But between that, that's a universal film. And then Universal had a very different view of Dracula with the uh, movie Renfield, which we'll, we'll talk about a little later. Um, unfortunately, because those two movies did so poorly, any kind of resurgence that I was hoping for with Dracula after the excess, uh, the success of the invisible man a few years ago and any, well, I mean, any idea of, of bringing him back full force, I guess is kind of not to sound corny, but kind of dead at this point because those movies did so poorly. Mm -hmm. Um, but you're talking almost a hundred years since the birth of Dracula on the screen, the first technical birth of Dracula, because we can talk about Nosferatu. But I think that the reason that Dracula has held so strong over almost a hundred years worth of filmmaking now starts at ground zero with Bela Lugosi. Yeah. So I know there were some silent film made, films made, you know, horror films before that, including Nosferatu. Yeah, it's um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame and the you know um, the Phantom of the Opera and some other silent films with Lon Chaney Senior and whatnot. But Dracula is really the birth of the horror genre in film. Mm -hmm. It's the first talkie with um, an incredibly mesmerizing performance. A guy who 
for all intents and purposes, should have become a much more uh, engaged actor because, you know, all kinds of problems with his career after this movie. We can get into that later if you want. Yeah. But if we're going to take a look at a, at a character and a portrayal of that character, Lugosi is the reason that we're still talking about Dracula today, mm -hmm. 100 years later. Lugosi yeah. is the reason that where when you see, you know, you see a, uh, you go into any store, Spirit Halloween or, you know, even your local uh, Walgreens or whatever, and you see candy packages and you see masks and you see whatever, it's a vampire. It's, it's always, it's always a, a caricature of Lugosi. Yeah. And that's with good reason. Because, uh, well, what, let me ask you a question. Let me reverse this on you. Why do you think that Dracula is so engaging almost 100 years after that film as I mean, a character? That, I mean, that is, that is an interesting question. I mean, and look, I mean, when I, I think, you know, certainly there's dozens and hundreds more vampire stories that have been told over the years, certainly. And there are people who've done variations of it. But ultimately, it comes back to Bram Stoker. And I think ideas of... I, I, I do think that because of the way Todd Browning and Bella Lugosi created the character in the Universal film, that certainly... I mean, you're right. It's basically ground zero. As much as I prefer Nosferatu as an individual film, like Roger Ebert said, that, that movie is such a dead end because of the fact that it's very self-contained and how many people want to see that version of the character throughout the movie throughout time, even though yes. we're getting ready to have our third movie called Nosferatu come out, at least third movie come about Nosferatu is inspired by, that's inspired by the Murnau film coming out in the next couple of years. Um, but uh, I think it's, you know, it's weird because of the fact that I haven't seen all of the I certainly have not seen all of the vamp the Dracula adaptations. I've seen a good number of them, um, but sure. I've seen. I I think one of the things that's interesting about Dracula is the iconography of the image that Bela Lugosi put on screen with Todd Bryan, the director. Um, I I do think it's the unusual nature of the way Lugosi played him. And I, I think it's the fact that it, it really, you know, it, this is going to really go into my conspiracy theory minded uh, brain because of the fact that, I mean, what is this movie? But it, it what is this story is it essentially is about, somebody who's very aristocratic, who very much has a, a certain air of being able to do what he wants, who basically moonlights, is, is a sociopath and is a, and is a killer. 
and gets away with it until, you know, people start to put the pieces together. And so I think that's that's part of it. I think there's a part of that that is always interesting about it. The fact that the character is so seductive towards his victims. I, I think the 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 blend of seduction with violence, I, I think that plays into it. I you know, as unsettling as that can be. But the fact of the matter is that's also one of the tenets of these adaptations is the fact that Dracula is very seductive towards young women and he lures them in and the men basically are finding out, have to figure out how to uh, defeat him. Let me take that thought and expand on it. So putting together the pieces with what you just put together, Dracula is also a tale about the outsider, a foreigner coming in and He's a problem within the society as an outsider, all right? And he's going and basically he's he's giving sexually transmitted diseases to the good old women of England. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another way to look at it. If you piece that in, a big part of the whole thing is that Dracula is not British. He's mm-hmm. not part of the community. He's an outsider. He's wealthy. He has certain powers and well, I guess you could use the word influence because it comes out of the fact that he's got technically got influence where he can influence people's thoughts and actions. Uh, but I think that's a big part of it, the fear of the outside of the other. And maybe just look at what's going on with border walls today in society, in our society today. It's mm-hmm. the same thing. It's a fear of the outsider. And I think that part of it is that Dracula, the novel, is a very, very British novel. Yeah. And it's, hey, here's this European this outsider who lives in this castle outside, out in the middle of nowhere, you know, he's not one of us and he's come here to take our women and infect them and infect our society. Mm -hmm. So I think that that reaches into some more primal fears of the outsider and fears of invasion. And, you know, one of the big fears, you know, I I always, I always like to look at, there, there are a few, like a handful of primal fears out there. Like one of those fears is, Hey, Something got inside. So you see this in a million horror movies. You're trying to hold the slasher or the zombies or whatever outside, and you're safe within. All right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's part of it. That's, hey, this is we let it in. It came in, and now it's affecting us. Yeah. It got in. How can we get rid of it now so we can go back to our normal setup here? Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's I think, a pro- big part of what um, is going on in the novel. And, I mean <laughs> – it, it it plays over into the movies as well, but then again, the movies, if you want to get in specific to Dracula, it's a whole different story than the novel. Um, yeah. Not so much in the main events, but a number of what happens, because it's not actually based on the novel, it's based on a play. Mm-hmm. That's why so much of it takes place, and I don't, maybe you can explain this to me. So a lot of it takes place in that one parlor room, and it seems like Dracula keeps showing up, and people keep showing up there, and Renfield keeps showing up. Is that supposed to be attached to the asylum, or is that the living quarters? <laughs> I can't even tell because they don't really. I don't think they ever really, really explain that. Like she comes down from her room and she's talking about you know him visiting in the night and all that, 
but it seems like it's attached to the asylum because Renfield, Renfield got to just buds in whenever he wants. Hey, dude, I'm here again to tell you about Dracula. You know? <laughs> um, so it's it's kind of strange that way. But yeah. um, so much of it is, hey, listen, you know, here we here we have this room because it's based on a stage play. So we're going to have 75% of the novel take place in this room, mm-hmm. right? So um, I don't know your take on that, but I can't figure out if that room is attached to the asylum. or Because Dracula says that the, the Carfax Abbey is across the – it's across, I guess, like a field or something. It's within visible distance of the insane, insane asylum. Right. But like I said, they keep like Seward shows up and then I don't know that, you know, which room I'm talking about, because 75 percent of the movie takes place in that room. Yeah. No, it's it's very weird. And, you know, I mean, I I think it's it's very, you know, it's kind of very interesting that that kind of had to happen that in a way that very much happened in. I mean, we can talk about the way different adaptations uh approach the subject because certainly I think there are some really I I think one of the things that's so fascinating about this story and the way it's been adapted over the years is the fact that so many people found different ways into visualizing this story I mean yes uh, you know the the Browning film as well as the John Badham film are basically based on the same plot are on the same play, but they approach the they approach the subject in very different ways, and you don't necessarily get that feeling of a condensed geography in the Batum film the way you do in the Browning film, and that's one of the things that's really fascinating about all of these adaptations. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's you know and. I think so much of, I you know, starting to listen to the audiobook for Dracula, I, I kind of feel like maybe part of the, I mean, obviously the state, being adapted from the stage play, I think was part of it. But also I think the fact that they're trying to maintain that sort of personal, intimate, quality that the book has in the way that it tells the story because the book is basically through letters it's through diary entries it's through newspapers so it's not necessarily so we're not necessarily getting this in the sense that people are just standing about in a room you know this story unfolding in a larger scale so I think that might be part of the reason that Browning and company approach the film that way. I mean, certainly the Murnau film doesn't approach in that way at all. And I mean, the structure's very much similar, but at the same time, you feel like there's more scope to Nosferatu. And yes. even even something like the Terrence Fisher um Hammer adaptation, uh, horror of Dracula in the fifties, with Christopher Lee, you you definitely feel that, and I mean certainly going to Coppola's version in uh, nineteen ninety two with Gary Oldman, I mean there's there's a ton of scope in there, but yeah, I mean I I think, and I I think you know the, 
I think it probably what might also have to do with that is that the the Browning film was done four years into the advent of sound. And that was that era where filmmaker there weren't a whole lot of filmmakers who were really who who were really throwing who were really going in hugely ambitious stylistic uh, swings when it comes to filmmaking. And I mean, well, I also, I'm sorry, go ahead. No. And, and that might be part of it as well. They might, they might've just said, you know what, we're going to keep it minimal. We're not necessarily going to go into these big set pieces, you know, these huge, set pieces to kind of set a larger context but you know we're basically just going to tell the story well i also think that part of it is that this was there this was not only the birth of dracula in as a character on film this was also the birth of universal horror films and i think a big part of it was hey listen um we have x amount of dollars we're going to put into this and basically, it looks like they blew their budget on a giant staircase, which I don't mind. It's a creepy <laughs> staircase. Yeah. I like that. Uh, but part of it is, hey, listen, we don't know how successful this is going to be or how, you know, how this is going to play out. We don't know how audiences – and audiences fell in love with it. They made it a huge hit. Uh, but mm-hmm. the thing is, not knowing, you know, that might have been a reason to dial back and say, listen, we can do this much, but this much is all we're going to do. So oh, I'm yeah. not sure if that played – but that could be a huge part of it. As far as scope goes, part of the problem is like it feels like Dracula is affecting six people in one room. <laughs> and uh, that's always, you know, once I, I loved it. Like, you want to talk about formative. I mean, I've, I've talked to you before on these podcasts about, you know, formative experiences with horror and what made me into a fan. You know, Channel 13 used to run these things back when I was a kid on public television on PBS at like, it had to be like 10 or 11 o'clock at night and mm-hmm. my parents would let me stay up and I'd be watching these classic horror flicks and I couldn't have been more than, I was probably six or seven years old when I was watching these. Yeah. I was fascinated, you know? Once I got older and anal- you know, started to analyze things, it was a little different. But I think that the one thing that stands out above and, be- and, above, and above all and still stands out to this day and always will is the Ghosties' performance. Mm-hmm. Now, I think part of it, it's, it's really interesting to look at what's going on with Lugosi and look at how Dracula is portrayed. So one thing I find fascinating is that Lugosi was actually Transylvanian. He was Romanian. So that was a big part of the appeal in getting him to play the character. Also, it's interesting that he played the character on stage in the play version before they brought him in for the movie. Yeah. Which, oddly enough, they revived that play in the 70s and Langella ended up playing that part in the play, and they hired him for the movie. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a weird and interesting precedent. Uh, I think that Lugosi's accent is great because yeah. you could tell he's not like anybody else around him in this film. There's nobody in this film like him, and he stands out as this weird other you know, outsider because of his accent, for one mm-hmm. thing. Um, so if you look at how they portray him as a vampire, it's really interesting, some of the things they do. Some of the things we take for granted in vampire movies today, you don't really see in this. 
like one of the things I realized, and I realized this years ago, but watching the Dracula again, I watched it two or three nights ago. It doesn't have fangs. He's got yeah. regular teeth. Mm. So that's part of it because you always associate vampires with fangs. And I guess you're supposed to assume that his fangs come out when he bites, but yeah, I guess they didn't want to have him in fangs. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about Renfield is that a lot of Nicolas Cage's dialogue doesn't seem like it was overdubbed because he's got these huge, you know, huge uh, sets of fangs on both his upper and lower mouth in that movie. Yeah. And his his speech is kind of garbled because of it, which I think plays into that character, but we'll get to that later. Um, and I think one of the, the greatest things that Browning and Carl Frun, the cinematographer, do in this movie is Every almost every time you see a close up of Dracula's face, his face is darkened out except his eyes. Yeah, and they do it in a bunch of different ways. And it's interesting because when they first do it, he's you know Renfield is uh, he's he's brought Renfield into his house. He puts down his cape and the hat, or his coat, uh, coat and hat, or his uh, whatever it is, his umbrella. And then Renfield is sitting at the table and he looks up and you see the way the room is lit and the lighting. And then it focuses on Dracula, and he's got the darkened out face, but this beam across his eyes. And there's no way the lighting in that room could provide the lighting we're seeing on his face. And darkness, yeah. the shadows there. So I think that's a really interesting thing, because you don't need to say, hey, this guy's different. You're showing he's different. So he's mm-hmm. got the accent. He's wearing a cape. He's wearing a little, you know, he's wearing a cape. He, he, he obviously is not like one of us, you know, mm-hmm. but I think that trick with the light is awesome. And they employ it a bunch of different ways. It's not always, always the one beam. Like sometimes it's each eye is individually lit. Sometimes it's on an angle. It's kind of weird, but they, they keep that motif visually throughout the film. Yeah. So Dracula, you know, you see that Dracula is something else. And I think that Lugosi has this great stare <laughs> that he could put on that just sells Dracula like a million bucks. Oh, absolutely. So I think all that really no, Lugosi. No, Lugosi is Lugosi was a fantastic performer. Uh, a couple of nights before, I actually just rewatched um, Invisible Ghost with him, and you know it's okay. it's it's an okay movie, but he basically plays a widower whose wife basically hypnotizes him into killing people. Pretty, pretty silly okay. premise, but Lugosi sells it exceptionally well because of the fact that we get this, we we get this sense of the unpredictable from him as a performer, and just this look on him that you're not used, you're not sure what to make of this this person. And that's something that he really does bring tremendously. That's that's so important to Dracula. And I mean, you know, we can talk about it in other performances where other performances lean more into the aristocracy, you know, and him being part of the upper class and him being more of high society. But and Lugosi has that to an extent. But you also just have a sense of un- uncertainty with him that is fascinating and really stands out from a lot of the other performances of Dracula we've gotten over the years. Well, I mean, just look at it a few years later. A few years later, he's played in Son of Dracula, 
by Lon Chaney Jr. And Lon Chaney Jr. is certainly no Bela Lugosi. Yeah. You know? Lon Chaney Jr. is very American. He's very tall. He's very bulky. He's not He's not the kind of guy you look at and think he was an aristocrat from Europe. Yeah. You know? So it's interesting even within Universe's monster, you know, Universal monster films, what they did between the 30s and the 40s with him. And it's a shame because Lugosi apparently refused to play Drac- uh, Frankenstein rather because he didn't want to go through the arduous makeup that they would have had to do him. Mm-hmm. And that kind of burnt some bridges because the only other time he technically played Dracula was in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So there's like a 13 or 14 year gap there. And all these other performances that they had, even, and I like John Carradine a lot, but John Carradine is, you know, no Bela Lugosi when it comes to that <laughs> role. And that's the whole thing. Yeah. They just, I think they whiffed by never having, they could have locked him in and used him over and over again as that character. And I think it would have played. That's kind of funny because I realized for the very first time the other day, because I was watching clips of uh, Abbott and Costello versus Frankenstein. You know, he's supposed to be the ageless vampire, and he looks so much older than he does <laughs> Dracula. You yeah. can tell even with all the makeup that he's aged and he's run down. And just, I mean, he still gives a great performance, but it's not the same thing. Yeah. Now, speaking about uh, vampire lore, it's interesting because you get the thing with the mirrors, right? Mm-hmm. So Van Helsing tries to show him his reflection in the mirror because you see where they flip the mirror up yeah. and he's talking to Mina, and then you can't see him, but you can see Mina. And then he shows Lugosi the mirror, and Lugosi smashes the box. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the lore. That's up. Uh, the sunlight thing is still there. The stake thing, obviously. But the interesting thing is, until Son of Dracula, they didn't really have the technology to do the whole bat into vampire or vampire into bat thing. Yeah. So it's kind of like, hey, we're going to have a bat float by, and then out of the fog walks Bella Lugosi after the bat flies off screen. Right. And then... <laughs> Part of that thing with that room that really annoys me, because cinema is supposed to be show, don't tell, is when Jonathan Harker's like, it's one of the 15 times that Dracula runs out of that room. And (laughs) Jonathan Harker runs over to the door and he's like, look, it's a wolf out there. And then Van Helsing has to explain to you, of course, because vampires can turn into wolves. So obviously they couldn't even bring in a dog and paint it up like a wolf. They just decided, okay, we're going to have this off screen because this is on the cheap. Yeah. But yeah, um, so he can turn into vampire. He can turn into a bat, and that's always been the popular one. People don't seem to remember most often that vampires can also turn into wolves. But I just find that scene very funny because it's so. Hey, look! Look at what's going on here that you can't see that I'm going to explain all the budget for this, and we can't get a wolf on set. You know? Yeah, yeah. So well, it's very interesting some of the stuff that they set up in there that exists in vampire lore today because of that film. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've seen some of the sequels because I think I did see Son of Dracula because I I know I so when Van Helsing came out you know Universal did those sets of the Legacy collection of like their different yeah, monsters and yeah. stuff like that Dracula Frankenstein Wolfman creature from Black Lagoon all that stuff I did get the Dracula and Frankenstein one so. I I watched a few of the different um, movies in those, but I can't remember if I did see some Dracula or not. Um, but yeah, it's uh, no, it is it is interesting, you know. And I, really, Dracula Morney 
the Browning film does set up a lot of the cinematic lore of um, adapting this story. But one of the things I always find so fascinating whenever I watch a new version of Dracula in of that Dracula story is seeing the way different filmmakers um, approach it. I mean, I, I think my favorite adaptation of Dracula away from Nosferatu is the Terrence Fisher one for Hammer uh, with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Um, and I think for there, you know, it's it's interesting because of the fact that I feel like with that one, more than some of the other ones, I, I feel like Dracula is much more of a personal threat to the characters in that one than he is in some of the other ones. You know, some of the other ones, they very, they very much are looking at the society as a whole, but, you know, I, I, that's one of the things I love about the Fisher one, Terrence Fisher film, is uh, the fact that a lot of it feels very personal in the way that that story is approached. Yes, I agree. And again, Peter Cushing as as Van Helsing, I mean, those two were great on screen every time they were on. No matter how terrible the movie be, they were always great together. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the the thing that's a it's, it's a weak spot for me with the Lugosi version, I just can't stand Van Helsing. <laughs> He's so annoying. Yeah, him and his uh, look. I know everything about vampires. How do you know this stuff? They mm-hmm. they do that in the novel too, and the, the yeah. Stoker version. Like Van Helsing shows up and he knows all the stuff about vampires, and you're just supposed to accept that. Okay, this guy who's supposed to be this eccentric doctor has all this information about a creature that nobody in the world knows about but him and some peasants in Romania. Right. But that particular version of Van Helsing has always graded on me. I guess I'm not a big Edward Van Sloan fan, but that might be me. Uh, not, <laughs> might not be him. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was fascinating to see that Lugosi is still a standard bearer in vampires. This, that, and I can't imagine that's ever going to change as long as film exists, you know? As long as, as long as we have a fascination with the undead and vampires, I think that vast, Lugosi will always be the go-to as far as, uh, as far as Dracula goes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, you know, it's it's been a while. I know, I know, as a lot of love, it's been a while since I've seen the uh, Francis Ford Coppola one. But I know uh, Gary Oldman has some fans, um, and uh, you know, I know Langella had some fans. Christopher Lee, no doubt, played the character more than any, more than any of them. Uh, I mean, I it, it's funny because of the fact that a couple of years ago I did an episode on. Uh, Jess Franco and we watched uh, Count Dracula, which had Christopher Lee playing the role as kind of an aging Dracula that was really fascinating. Yes, watch. Yeah. Um, you know, and yeah, I mean, Langella is an interesting choice in the movie and in the uh, Batam film, and you know, it's it's always interesting to see in these movies what filmmakers choose to prioritize when they're telling this story or what filmmakers decide to change in telling these stories. I mean, one of the things that's interesting for me about um, horror of Dracula is the fact that 
Harker knows, already knows that Dracula is a vampire. When he gets there. That's such that's such an interesting setup. Yeah. Because you go in expecting it to be the same story. Mm-hmm. And you expect Parker to find this out and he's gonna be stuck with the wives and all that. And then within five minutes he's in the room and he's in the room and he's pulling out holy water and snakes, and it's like, oh my god, this guy knows already. And that yeah. sets that film in a whole different, really interesting take. You know, I think that what the Hammer films did was great because they brought in color, they brought in blood, and they brought in cleavage. Those were the three <laughs> things that definitely made the Hammer films much different because they took it in directions that in the 30s and 40s you couldn't go. Yeah. You know, the Hayes Code never would have let that stuff happen in the, in the 30s and 40s. No. But once you get to that age, it's a whole different take on the vampire because it's it's more modern, it's in color, it's it's vibrant color a lot of it. You know, even the costume designs are all very colorful in those Hammer films. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the the trick with Hawker at the beginning, I thought it was great. I find that very entertaining. That it just subverts expectations, and you're like, okay, so now we're now we find out that Hawker already knows this. Where is it going to go from here? Yeah, and and the way that and you know, it's like. To, to bring in Nosferatu, it's like the way, you know, it's interesting that Nock in Nosferatu, who's the, who is, who is the, uh, who is Hooter's, Harker, sorry, Hutt, right? Harder, well, Nock is uh, Hutter's box in uh, Nosferatu, and he's basically the Renfield character yes. in that variation. And some yeah. variations, you don't really get Renfield at all, and other versions, He's he's more of a presence in the story than than he is otherwise, and it's always it, that that aspect is the way filmmakers choose to tell this story is part of what makes it interesting that we have so many different versions of this story because of the fact that um, they find their own ways in. And I, I'm always so fascinated by that. You know, it's funny. You brought up Renfield earlier today, this year, and or earlier today on this episode. And you know, we, I, I personally, I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was fun. I, would I put it up there with the best Dracula movies? No, I wouldn't. But I, I think what Nicolas Cage does as Dracula, I think what Nicholas Holt does as Renfield, I think the way that dynamic is approached, I think is very interesting and entertaining in kind of a dark comedy way. So here's my thoughts on Renfield. I thought it was fine. Yeah. You know, I thought that Nicholas Holt was excellent in it. Mm -hmm. And we'll get back to uh, Mr. Cage in a second here. My big problem with that is... I don't think you needed an entire subplot with this overrun town with this mob and this business with Aquafina and her disgraced father and all that. I think that because it was sold in the trailers as, hey, this is Renfield going to a self-help group Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because he's in an abusive relationship. Yeah. I thought that was awesome. Mm-hmm. And those elements between him and Cage play out so well. Yeah. They play out superb, especially like when there are scenes where Holt starts to cry. And it's like, I really feel for the guy. 
Like this is over a hundred years of him just being in this abusive relationship with this. And it's funny because Dracula plays all the tricks. Hey, you know, I love you. You know, even though I made you kill 16 people for me, <laughs> that you're still my guy. I, yeah. I'll always love you. I'll always take care of you. Now go and do my bidding. Don't fuck it up. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and those scenes play out really well. Yeah. The whole subplot with Aquafina, it's like a whole different movie and it doesn't need to be there. Yeah. They could have made an hour and a half movie about that relationship and the therapy group and all that, which would have given it more a more of a cohesive, you know, storyline. And I just figure it would have been a lot better because I'm more interested in in that than hey, Aquafina is being Aquafina, which is gonna annoy me and probably eighty five percent of the audience <laughs> that's what Aquafina does. She only plays Aquafina, and Aquafina is an annoying human being, right? And we're going to have to deal with her. And I'm supposed to sympathize with her about her father and all that, and her sister. And I'm like, I don't care about any of this. Yeah. Just give me Renfield to give me Dracula. It's named Renfield. It's not Renfield and Aquafina, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so did you want to talk about Langella first, or did you want to hop into Renfield? It's up to you. No, we can we can talk about Langella first. Um, you know, the, sure. the thing that I noticed in the John Badham film from 1979 that Langella played Dracula in. First of all, the hairstyles are very, very 70s. Um, late 70s, early oh, 80s. The hair, hairstyle is completely there. Um, he's got such a beautiful head of hair in that movie, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I loved the... I, I love the overall production of that movie. I, I will say... I, I was really quite taken by the production design that movie, and obviously John Williams, I think, does a really good score in the film. Um, you know, and I, I think it's an interesting version of the character, the idea, and I, I think one of the things that's interesting about that version of the character and Langella, I know, talked has talked about it, where he he really does play it as the hero that the humans are getting into uh, are are trying to take out, and he's very much a romantic character. He really is playing up the seduction element of the character exceptionally well, I think. Um, you know, overall, I think it's a very good movie. I I don't know that there's anything overall that I think it does particularly better than, like, the Browning film, than the Hammer film, but it's still... A, I was really impressed with how interesting the uh, take on the film was. I think that well, there are several differences, but the big difference for me in the performance has always been that it's so much more sexualized than Lugosi. And obviously, yeah, you know, you couldn't you couldn't have the Lugosi character portray it in quite the same way because of the 30s, you know, the time frame that you're in with the Hays Code and all that. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that um, when you get to the 70s, Langella is just super sexy in that movie. He's got the hair. He's got the you know he's got the shirt button halfway down. Yeah, and he you know he's very very sexualized, and that's a big huge difference. And I mean, it's 
it it carries over because that's you know a big part of what men look like in the seventies, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as far as the hair and the chest and all that goes. But I think that that's really interesting that he was allowed to take it and so just take it to a whole other seductive level. Because I mean, I I don't know what the standards were back in the thirties, but I've never found Bella Lugosi to be a really handsome individual. Uh, that's just my take. <laughs> and uh, I you know, I think it's a fairly reasonable take. Okay, I appreciate that. Uh, the thing is that Lugosi obviously was not allowed to do the things with the character as far as sexually. Lugosi is more like a monster, yeah. whereas Langella, even with the fangs and the things that he's doing, is more like just a, a seducer, mm. you know? And again, it's that whole idea that, hey, this guy's come. I find it really interesting, and both these productions are based on the stage play, the same stage play, but I find it fascinating that they take away the whole s you know, they take away the whole idea of Lucy and Lucy's three lovers that are vying to get her attention because a yeah. big part of character in the novel is, hey, these three guys are her suitors, and this fourth guy sweeps in and steals their woman away. <laughs> <laughs> so they're on this quest to basically eliminate him now that he's stolen their woman, right? That's exactly what it is. Well, and one of the things, into the- yeah, and one of the things I find so fascinating reading the or listening to the book is how Stu- Seward becomes a fundamental part of helping Lucy while Arthur is the one who ultimately is in love with her. And so that element is interesting. Uh, we have not, I will say we have not gotten enough versions of Dracula with the uh, Texas uh, Quincy Morris. I I, oh, I, yeah. hope, I hope the next time somebody does a variation on Dracula that that is front and center because we, we really lost out in like the late 80s, early 90s having Woody Harrelson play Quincy Morris. He would have been, that would have been a uh, fascinating performance from him. Yeah, that would have been great. Isn't he played in the, in the, um, in the, I think he is in the Coppola version. Yeah. The Coppola version. He's in there. I think he's played, I think he's played by the same guy who played the Rocketeer, believe it or not. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Which is funny because you'd never look at that actor and say, oh, that's the Rocketeer. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He comes in and he's big man Texas and he's got his huge Bowie knife and all that. But it's yeah. just funny that, you know, those two, especially I find it surprising with the, um, the Langella version because the Langella version is so focused on the sexuality of things that they cut out those whole suitors for, for Lucy. And actually in both the original and this and the Langella version, the, the Lugosi and the Langella version, I think they turned Dr. Seward into, because I know they switch around the names with the girls, but I think they turn him into either Lucy or Mina's father, I'm going to say. Yeah. And yeah, and that's, and, you know, it's, it, yeah, and I mean, that's what I was talking about earlier, where it's like there are so many different variations of this story, just doing little things in a different way than what we're used to. I mean, there's no, really, there's, 
I, I don't know that you can say there's ever been a truly definitive adaptation of Dracula in the sense that somebody going... I mean, I guess Coppola came closest, probably, in terms of following the story that Stoker, that uh, Bram Stoker laid out. But the fact of the matter is, it's like some of the more iconic variate versions of the story leave out huge chunks of it or switch things around in a way that are completely, it's completely different. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just look at the last voyage of the Demeter. Yeah. We have a very slight chapter of the novel Dracula that's based on, as from the accounts of the, uh, the captain of the ship, right? Yeah. So they get to the ship, the ship, the Demeter crashes on land and they come out and they find the captain chained tied to the, uh, the the wheel there for the boat, the steering wheel for the boat with a, a crucifix in his hand, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the whole idea is that, hey, listen, um, we picked up this stuff in Varna and we're headed off and some weird things have been happening and, oh, another guy disappeared today, you know? To the point where I would assume that a crew from that, that period would be all men, right? Yeah. And they'd probably all be all white guys because, you know, you know, integrated society and all that, not quite back in the day. But the thing is that with the Demeter, they have to add a woman in there. They have to add a kid in there. They have a black man. Things that probably Stoker never intended. So just even on that take that it's a slight take on the novel. And I don't know how you feel about Dracula's portrayal in that. Like, it's all – I was hoping that we were going to see him as, you know – Dracula the man at points transforming yeah. into this thing and back and forth. I was kind of disappointed that it was just, you know, like, hey, here's this looking creature that's going to be Dracula. You know, well, I, th I think it kind of shortchanged the character there. Yeah. And well, and the thing is, it's like, this is, this is essentially, I mean, it basically leaned into the idea that this is a slasher situation, right? I mean, it's essentially a slasher movie where, uh, the characters are in a trap situation, a, a basically a uh, locked room, and they can't really get away. And um, something's picking them off one at a time. It, it's very much a slasher. It, it's in well, the vein of like Friday Thirteenth and Halloween more than it is Dracula. And yeah, I mean, I. <sighs> It certainly would have been more interesting, I think, if they had leaned more into the transformation that Dracula makes at times, and some people see the man, some people see the demon, and there are so many different ways that I feel like you could have, you, you could have changed that story in a way that made it much more compelling than what we got um you know and it's a shame because i absolutely love the filmmaking i love the production design i love the sound effects i love the the camera angles we take i i think it's a tremendously made movie that just doesn't understand that just doesn't really know the best way to tell the story. I think having Dracula as 
a demonic presence only shortchanges the potential there. And I think having, but, and also if you were to just have Dracula as a man, I think it could have shortchanged you too in a different way. But having, figure out a way to show both sides of the character and make this just as dangerous to people. Well, I think that's one of the greatest attributes of vampires as characters in horror for the last hundred years. They appear human. Yeah. And part of that is there's a subterfuge that's going on where you could think you're with a human and then the next thing you know, your throat's getting torn out. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you have him just as the demon, like you don't get to see the, you don't get to see the aristocrat at all in, in last voyage of Demeter. Yeah. And again, I feel the same way about Demeter that I feel about Renfield. It was fine. You know, I just think that they could have done so much more. And then they have this black character who obviously represents the outsider because he's a different color. And you find that his backstory at one point. And I really was hoping they were going to make a greater association between him as an outsider and Dracula as an outsider. And they really don't touch that at all. Very, very, you know, scant, you know, touches here and there, but they don't really make it out what it could have made it at. Mm-hmm. You know, early on, the crew, one of the guys in the crew starts to suspect that it might be this guy because, hey, we don't know him. He's an outsider. He's not one of our crewmen who's been with us for years. And then that guy dies in like the next scene. Yeah. So it's, why did you even set that up to just drop the ball on that, you know? Yeah, exactly. I think that. I think that, and again, I don't want to rewrite movies, but I think that that and Renfield, had they taken a a little bit different approach on each of them, we could have got some really entertaining and some really powerful films. Mm Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. But as far as Langella goes, yeah, Langella, I think, did a great job. Again, I would put him right up in that same league as, as Christopher Lee and as far as Lugosi goes, you know, is it a great film? No, I don't know about that. I mean, I find it very interesting that it's made by the same guy who two years, three years earlier made Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. Isn't that <laughs> It is worlds away from that film. But I think that Batman did a really good job. It's got some beautiful scenery. They do some stuff with matte paintings and, and oh, just yeah. some fascinating stuff with that. And I also like that they kind of touch on the technology. So there's one point where like they're making a big deal out of it. Hawker's driving this like 1920s car and he's got his little, his little steering wheel and all that. And he's got to crank it up in the front. Yeah. I think that's cool that they kind of touch on the technology with some of the stuff like that to point out that, hey, Dracula is a very old school type of creature. He's been around for hundreds of years. And I think part of the thing that connects that movie, like that stuff with the car that I was talking about, is that we're on a. The, we're about to embrace a new age when uh, Stoker writes the novel. Mm-hmm. So, like the stuff with the, you know, I mean, there are some. I think there are some vocal recordings on there. There's stuff about, you know, telegrams and stuff. It's all this new technology world that we're right on the breaching of. You know, ready to break in. And here's Dracula saying, "Hey, I want to, you know, hold back on that and, you know, bring it to a place where." I don't want change. I want things to be the way they've always been. Yeah. Which is a kind of fascinating element of that novel. And we talked about the blood typing the other day. Let's not even get into that. <laughs> I mean, least... who don't know. <laughs> Go ahead. 
I mean, at least the Batam film at least acknowledges it's like, oh yeah, I'm the same blood type. I I think yes. some, I think some filmmakers had realized it's like, oh yeah, this is not something that's supposed to make sense. Logic makes sense. So, so 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 for those of you listeners who don't know, right? Uh, blood transfusions back in around the time of the late 1800s were becoming um, part of surgery, right? And part of med- medicine, right? Um, but the problem is that you can't just give anybody any blood because certain people, if you gave, if I'm a certain type and you're a certain different blood type and I give you my blood, it's going to kill you. Yeah. All right. So there are about 27 transfusions in there with different people where. I don't know if they hadn't developed the blood typing yet or, or Stoker wasn't aware of it, but yeah, most of the cast would be dead because of blood transfusions in his novel. <laughs> but yeah, that's the thing that we're on the brace. You know, we're ready to brace this new technology. We're ready to embrace it and move forward. And here's this relic of this old world who's come and invaded. So that's another, and really, I mean, Dracula gets defeated by technology in that movie. Yeah. And all the stuff that, that Van Helsing does, I mean, there's the crucifixes and all that stuff, but a lot of it is, Hey, here's scientific theory and how this is going to play into how we can kill this guy and get rid of him. And that's one of the reasons that I think the novel is it's fascinating on that level, always has been for me. You know, I flip on a light switch or I turn on my barbecue or whatever, I just take it for granted. You know, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that stuff would have been fascinating and it would have been bringing you into a whole different world from where you were, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think that the uh, some of the stuff they do with the technology and and again you get the scenes like the, there's all kinds of superstition and stuff too like the horse I believe that um, what's his face uh, oh god who's the actor who plays um, Van Helsing in that I can't, it's Lawrence Olivier yeah there's the whole yeah thing it's Olivier he has the horse that can identify you know vampire grids apparently. <laughs> That sort of superstitious stuff. You get the stuff with the crosses, and but it's it's really a blending of old school and and new technology. It just it's always fascinated me on that end. So. Yeah, yeah. Now I would definitely agree with that. And yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed it. I I I I, I enjoyed watching that version of uh, Dracula. And again, it, it it comes down to the fact that like the way different. I'm always it's always interesting. Like you know. It's it's easy to it's easy to poo-poo on people who decide to update modern you know old stories to modern ages, whether it's remaking an old film, doing a reboot, whatever you want to call it now, because of the fact that it's like, well, you know, they're they're doing it for the IP of it. They're doing it because of the fact that it's it's something familiar. But I I think if you can if you can do that in a way that is where you're telling a story like you have a character you have filmmakers who are telling the story in a way that might illuminate something about that the relationships or the characters in general there's there's value to that always I mean it's not just Oh, I'm going to exploit this uh, intellectual property to make money. Well, look, we talked last time about the thing. You know, anyone who wants to say no sequel should ever be made should just look at the thing. 
Yeah. The thing from another world is this corny, corny 50s flick with this giant carrot guy running around killing people. And John Carpenter took that idea and the technology was advanced and the story was about paranoia. And you get a whole bunch of stuff there that's going on that fits in with the 80s, the very yeah. early 80s. And you have some of the best special effects ever by Rob Bottin. You know, I love the original version of The Fly with um, Vincent Price, but Cronenberg took that and made it his own. And again, special effects technology and those sorts of things. Like if you're going to remake something, there should always be a, a reason other than money or IP that you're remaking something. Yeah. And I think that's why I think that's why people still talk today about Rangella's version of Dracula. And I can't remember the last time that I've had somebody say, hey, did you see Dracula Untold with Luke Evans as Dracula? <laughs> In fact, there are times when I forget that movie exists, Brian. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, like I said earlier at the beginning of the podcast here, you know, Universal tried two different takes on it with Renfield and Demeter here. And neither of them really pulled the strings monetarily as they wanted to. And it's sad because... You know, Dracula is the heart, not to sound corny, Dracula is the heart of the whole universal monster universe going way back to the beginning in 31. Yeah. And it's a shame that he's going to probably be pushed to the side because they're going to say, well, we took, we took two, you know, spins at the wheel and it didn't work out. So let's put him on the shelf for another 10 years or whatever, you know? Right. Well, and the thing that's and, – and the thing about that is that, you know, with Renfield – like that seems like not only does the central premise of Renfield, the idea that Renfield is an abusive relationship with Dracula coming on in that those terms and having an actor's fantastic as Nicholas Holt in the role is, is, is interesting, but you have Nicholas Cage, who is one of the crown princes of just going in completely wild performance directions in the role of Dracula. Like, that is prime material to, okay, we're going to just go for broke here. We're going to play something that is interesting, and we're going to get one of the great polarizing actors of our time to play Dracula. And it's like, it's not like Nicolas Cage... I mean, Nicolas Cage has shown an interest in vampires and Dracula lore before because he produced Shadow of the Vampire, which we talked about, which was a satirical riff on the making of Nosferatu that posed that Max Schreck was an actual vampire. But to go back even earlier than that, you have to go back to 1988. So I don't know how many people in your audience have seen the film Vampire's Kiss. Have you seen it? I'll be honest. I, I'm, I'm relatively... I haven't seen a whole lot of Nicolas Cage in the 80s, and I know I need to. Uh, no, I have not seen Vampire's Kiss, though. So Vampire's Kiss is very much the same story as George Romero's Martin from about 15 years earlier. George Romero's Martin is about a kid who comes home to his family and he thinks he's a vampire 
but he's not an old school vampire. He doesn't have fangs and those sorts of things. He drugs women, he slits their wrists. And basically it's about this kid who is totally delusional and his family, his great uncle thinks that he's also a vampire. And basically 88 comes around and Nicholas Cage ends up in vampire kiss. And I'm sure everyone's seen the meme, the picture of him with the wild bugged out eyes and his hair combed and all that. Yeah. So, Kate shows up in this, and he's at a bar at the beginning, and he's a total yuppie. You know, he's on, I believe, Wall Street. He's one of those type people. He's an investor or a stock trader or whatever. And he is a total low-life scumbag, right? Right. So he's this woman at the club, and he's fascinated, but he's with this other girl. He takes her home, and then – so it plays on the whole, is this really happening or not thing? So you get uh, a bat flies in the window while he's – having sex with this girl and the bat bites him and then it's okay well is he really a vampire or does he think he's a vampire and this is one of the like people seem to focus on you know the newer cage flicks like the remake of um the wicker man i guess is the most famous one with the not the bees yeah where everyone goes nuts about his performance he had that kicking in the late age perfectly he'd already gone (laughs) full-blown nuts so his character you know, he's this delusional guy, and then he thinks he's becoming a vampire. So it's interesting to see him go from that, where he's he's a guy who's probably out of his fucking mind and just thinks he's becoming a vampire, to the fact that Nicolas Cage actually ate a real roach, and they filmed it. It's disgusting. <laughs> he was that much into the character. It's It's interesting to see him go from that, to producing Shadow of the Vampire, which again, if you haven't seen it, folks, you should definitely see that. It. Like awesome movie. Yes. To the point where now he's actually portraying Dracula, and I think that the greatest thing about his portrayal of Dracula, he brings that whole gusto, that insane Nicolas Cage thing, but it's actually very menacing in that movie. Mm-hmm. He plays the comedy perfectly, but he underscores it with the with the idea that hey, this is this is Dracula. This is the Prince of Darkness. And if you're in his presence, uh, you might not be alive by the end of the night. Yeah. So I think he does a really good job. And there are scenes at the beginning where he's in this heavy, heavy makeup because he's been burned mm-hmm. and Renfield's taken care of. And he's like, it's disgusting to even look at him. He's all disheveled. And he's putting on such a performance through that makeup. And I think yeah. it's awesome that he's that committed to that role. Because, you know, he could have just come in for a cheapie and done his Nicolas Cage thing, been in and out. But you can see he's invested in this. Because mm-hmm. there are some times when he just starts throwing the eyebrows up in the air and screaming. And it's like, ah, oh, he's just doing his Cage thing for a paycheck. I don't think this was that. I get the feeling that he actually put his all and invested into the character of Dracula. Here. And it's just fascinating to me that, especially there's a scene where he's in Renfield's because Renfield goes out and he decides, I'm going to cut ties. I got my self-help book telling me how to deal with my abuser here. Going to get an apartment and all that. And there's this really funny scene where he shows about his apartment and Dracula's in there. And then he looks down because vampires have to be welcomed in. And there's a welcome bat on the front of the door. So, so that's how he got in. <laughs> but he starts reading off his, you know, out of the book. And he's trying to sell Nicolas Cage on, I don't need you anymore. This is how this needs to be. And Nicolas Cage just overwhelms him. Yeah. And it ends up where, you know, he actually literally. Holt actually literally sinks and he's kneeling on the ground. You know, he's on his ass on the ground and Kate is standing over him and it's just like absolutely menacing. Yeah. So I find it 
interesting that he's able to balance the comedy, but there's always that underside that, hey, this is the, the Prince of Darkness. This is the meanest, baddest-ass vampire in history, and he's here for food. He's here to munch, munch mm-hmm. down and have some blood. So, yeah. What do you think of his performance? I, I really liked it. I, I, I thought, I mean, Nicolas Cage, the more I think about it, is probably my favorite actor working, which it makes it even more dispiriting that I have to catch up with so much of his A's work because of the fact that I just, you know, there are a lot of films of his that we'll probably never see because a lot of the film, there was a run of films that he made that is just not, he he was clearly doing them because of the fact that he needed to, you know, he, he needed money to pay off his taxes and tax debt and all of that stuff. But when he is in a performance and you can tell he's very committed to that character, you you can there's something about him that is just very captivating as as a performer. Absolutely. And I I I you know, whether you're talking about something like Renfield, whether you're talking about raising Arizona, whether you're talking about face off, or whether you're talking about something like Pig or Mandy, he's somebody who really, when he has a role to really sink his teeth into, no pun intended, um, he really is one of the most fascinating people, actors to watch. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that he's got this reputation of somebody who just goes big in a over the top and it's not very interesting, but if you watch so many of his, his movies, there's so much more to him than just that. And that's, and I, I was, let's put it this way. I mean, it's, it's a uh, pretty, you know, it's a pretty weak qualifier, but I will say cage as Dracula is by far his most, his best performance playing an iconic character who's been played by several other actors of 2023. Uh, Because let's face it is his brief appearance as Superman as the flash. No, no, we're, we're not going there. We're, we're not going to go there. Um, I, I did really, I, I did really like, uh, I, I enjoyed Renfield. I, I thought it was entertaining um, you know, it, I love the fact that, I mean, it's because you have two absolutely fantastic actors at the center of in Cage and Nicholas Holt. And, you know, it's funny because of the fact that I, before seeing the movie, I'd forgotten about the fact that Holt played Nicholas Cage's son in The Weatherman, the Gore Verbinski film. Oh my God, which, I forgot about that. Which makes this such a wilder pairing that really, that normally would be. But the fact is, it's like Nicholas Holt is, he's somebody who you can kind of see as the same type of performer in a way that Nicholas Cage is. You know, Absolutely. You, you can see him, they they have very similar ways of approaching characters in a lot of ways. But I, I think there's, there's, and there's a sincerity to Holt 
that is really endearing makes you feel for his version of Renfield. And yeah, like you said with Cage, it's like he, he's playing the comedy of the film, but he also is plenty capable of just scaring the shit out of you. Well, that's the whole thing. Holt is a really talented actor. And Nicolas Cage, like, you you hire Nicolas Cage, and you know you're going to get the crazy, but you also hope that he's going to be invested enough to give you more than that, which yeah. he does in Renfield. And I think that the fact that they play off, they are just per, pitch perfect the way they play off each other. And I'm terrified by Cage at points in that movie because Holt is terrified and he sells that so well, and I'm so invested in his character. Mm-hmm. And part of the problems with horror movies forever has been that weak characterization, characters I just don't care about. This is why Freddy's a lot more popular than any of the people he killed in those Nightmare on Elm Street movies, you know? But the thing is that when I look at Holt, I buy into it because he's terrified. And that's a performance worth, worth putting on when you got me to sympathize with you to the point where I'm scared, not just as, you know, in a general blanket sort of way because it's a vampire movie, but I'm scared for the character. Yeah. And that tells you how well that Holt sold playing Renfield. And I, I just think that that movie, again, could have been a lot more than it was. I'm satisfied with what it is. There are two really great performances that are deserving of a better movie. And I don't think you'll ever see a sequel to that, but if you sign up those two, I'm signed up for going and checking yeah. it out. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No, definitely. I, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and it's, it's funny because of the fact that we got these two very different versions of uh, Dracula this, this year, um, both from Universal. And it's interesting that you ver- even though Dracula is in the public domain, Universal seems to be the one that releases the vast majority of Dracula movies or movies inspired by the book. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of them that I'm uh, not necessarily thinking of, but it feels like Universal every few years will see, okay, let's see how can we work with this version of Dracula or this version of Dracula. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, it's interesting to see different filmmakers approaching the, uh, character in different ways. I mean, you know, I'll admit there are some that I, you know, and I, I remember I'm a Buffy Vampire Slayer fan. I really enjoyed when they did Dracula on Buffy. I I thought they did a really good job of playing with the tropes of Dracula, Dracula's narrative uh, with that episode and really tying it in to the evolution of Buffy as a character. I thought they did a tremendous job of that. Um, Well... I think part of the fascinating, something that's always fascinated me about Dracula is that the character is timeless. And I mean, as a character, he's literally timeless because if you don't stick a stake in them, he's immortal. But also, he's malleable. You can do so many things with Dracula and do so many takes on that character that, you know, it's not just a static thing where you're stuck in Victorian England in the late 1800s. Yeah. Like there are so many things you can do with that character 
that are fascinating, you know, and you can bring out, I mean, look, vampires are immortal, they're timeless, and you can pull them out at any point in history and make something fascinating with them and make a really great movie if you're interested and invested and you want to do it properly. Yeah. Like, you know, and if you wanted to invest and do it properly, you're going to make a great film. You know, unfortunately, like I said, you know, it just seems that that's not the case with these last two films because as much as I like certain elements of both of them, they just didn't do very well. And I was hoping that either one or both of them, how, how great would it have been for Universal and for us as horror fans if both of those films would have hit big? Oh, it would have been fantastic. That would have been great, yeah. Yeah, would have been fantastic. Would have been much better than... Would have been much better than Gerard Butler in Dracula 2000. But we're not talking about <laughs> poor performances. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm guessing that's your pick as, like, your least favorite uh, Dracula of all time. I saw Dracula 2000 in a theater, and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. Surprised I made it through to the end credits. But I... 2006 when it came out or 2007 i thought saw 300 i'm like this guy is going to be huge and then i realized he's only interesting if he's playing leonidas and fighting you know for the spartans the 300 spartans he's just (laughs) again god bless him and all but he's not a great actor by any means but yeah that that could have been a really good take because it's 2000 it's the new millennium and all that they just did some terrible, terrible things. I don't know if you've seen that one, but if you haven't, by all means, please avoid it, Brian. <laughs> I, I, I will definitely do so. It is on Max, <laughs> and uh, I, I will be sure to avoid it. I, I think my least favorite Dracula is Richard Roxburgh from uh, Van Helsing. Oh my I, god! It, I, have it, a, it, I have a quick it, I have a quick anecdote to relate about that. So my sister and her friend, a year before or so that came out, they went to see a Broadway play that Hugh Jackman was in. And Hugh Jackman was signing autographs after. And my sister's friend is a huge horror fan, and she asked him about Van Helsing. And he's like, oh, it's going to be a great movie. You're going to love it. And she says to me, she's never trusted Hugh Jackman since. (laughs) (laughs) You can trust Hugh but Jackman as you. You can trust Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. That's basically it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I. I mean, I. I'll admit, I. I like Van Helsing more than I like more than other people did, but I hated their take on Dracula. Was like basically the biggest over-the-top tendencies to the character that you can imagine. And it, it it just didn't work for so many reasons, but um, yeah, I mean that's that's easily my least favorite uh, interpretation of the character, but I blame yeah, that more on Stephen Summers than anybody. Well, I mean, if you want to take a quick look at why that movie exists, hey, look, the uh, the Mummy movie made it really big, so let's go and stretch out and have that director direct. Uh, something that's going to unite all Universal monsters and yeah. do a terrible job. Yeah, but I hate to bag on CGI, but the CGI monsters in that thing are just so freaking <laughs> bad. I mean, it's an ice sort of watch that flick. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know the one thing here's the one thing I will say that was good 
that came out of Van Helsing is that we did get those legacy collections of the original Universal Monster movies. I, I will yes. say that. Um, because it put those movies back into the public consciousness, put them out in a way that people could really look at them and really see them in context of how those characters progressed on screen, at least in Universal's iteration of them. And that's that's not a bad thing. That that is not a bad thing, uh, even if the movie that inspired it uh, very much is. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, the thing about the Universal Monsters is, like I said, when I was a kid, that was great. Staying up late on a Friday night, they'd always have three of them in a row, and they're short movies. Yeah. So like a two and a half hour span, you'd have three different movies, you know? And I'd stay up, my dad and mom would let me stay up every Friday. It was a couple weeks in a row every year. I guess it was probably around Halloween time, I'm going to guess. But the thing is, that introduced me to them. So the thing was, in the 50s, basically all those 30s and 40s movies, they sold like a, a Universal sold like a monster pack, and some of the monster or whatever. They sold like the rights for 40 or 50 of those movies to play on television. So back in the 50s, those kids in the 50s were introduced to those movies because back then you didn't have VCRs and streaming and stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, so you had to go to a theater. So those those brought in a whole new generation of fans. So the eighties, like I said, I'd catch them on, you know, sometimes they'd be on channel nine during the Halloween season, but I just remember staying up late on Friday nights on uh, PBS. Then you get those DVDs and it's like, hey, here's a whole bunch of here's a way to introduce it to a new generation. And I think that keeping Dracula alive in the public conscious is great because there's always a new way to introduce the characters, the monsters, and hopefully kids these days can fall in love with them like I did when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, there are 10-year-olds who are probably going to say they're corny, but they still work for me on a certain level, you know? Yeah, the I mean, the, the best films with these characters definitely still work in a lot of interesting ways, and I think that is... I, I think that's the, that's, that's the most dispiriting thing about the uh, relative failure of Renfield and Last Voyage of the Demeters, the fact that they're both interesting takes on the character that just, for one reason or another, they, they're they fine, but they don't really go beyond that. You know, I, it'd be but great to say that. we got two absolutely fantastic, exciting new versions of Dracula this year. But the one thing I can say about those movies is that they made big swings and they tried. Yeah. And I'd much rather see those two films any of the because there's no way I'm going into a theater. I saw both of those in the theater. There's no way I'm going into a theater to get my eight, ten bucks, whatever it is, and buy popcorn to see the nun two. Yeah. You know? There's no way I'm gonna go see garbage that shouldn't scare a ten year old or a five year old where they're not even trying. At least those movies took big swings and tried to do something. Yeah, and if they did introduce some some kids to that, you know, those old Universal horror movies, you know, the better for us, the better for all of us who love great filmmaking, and in my case, great horror films, you know. Or if somebody like saw Last Voyage of the Demeter and was like, "Ooh, now I'm interested in reading the entire novel." Oh, you know, of course, that, yeah. That would be that would be great, and then 
you you go into Dracula from that way. Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be fantastic. Um, I do find it fascinating that during the first couple minutes when Renfield's explaining his character to the audience, they cut Nicolas Cage and, and Holt into scenes from the original Dracula in the black and white. <laughs> and they just, it was seamless and it was perfect. And I thought that was, wow. Because I just watched Dracula two nights before and then I watched that last night. And I'm like, okay, I remember this scene and I remember these specific actors in here and now Nicolas Cage is standing where Bela Lugosi was standing. <laughs> so... You know, it's a, it's a nice bridge to have. But like yeah. you said, if it gets people to read the novel, you know, more more, and that might open you up to reading Frankenstein at some point. You might get more into Gothic horror. You might get more into, you know, reading uh, some great horror out there and yeah. have a lot of fun with it. Well, it's the perfect season for it. It's October. It's Halloween. I have two degrees in English I have. I'm more than happy to get people to read. Yeah, so if absolutely. if you to read Dracula, more power to you, you know? Mm-hmm. No, that's absolutely true. Um, well, Phil, thank you very much once again for uh, joining me on the podcast. I'm glad we were able to have this discussion that's a little bit more, it's it's a little bit out of what we typically do when you and I talk, but I, I really was, I really love this as a topic of discussion, not only because of the fact that we got two movies out this year that tried big swings at um, taking on Dracula, but also because of the fact that it's a different way of talking about horror and talking about the talking about the history of horror on movies. And well, that was the whole thing. I, I mentioned this when we talked, I guess, earlier in the week or last week. We could have gone through this and did what we normally did and just take a look at three films. But I thought it was really interesting to take a look at the performances why Lugosi's so, you know, in the public conscience even today, even if you have never heard his name or you've never seen the movie, you know who Dracula is because of him, you know? And I think it's fascinating that Langella took certain parts of that and made it a very 70s version of Dracula for the 70s. And Nicolas Cage put on a hell of a performance. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that looking through it it through that prism where we looked at three different takes on Dracula and the performances themselves, it's just a really interesting way for us to do this, and hopefully your audience will be interested as well. Yeah. Yeah, and it gives us the freedom to talk about different versions of Dracula beyond those three as well. We brought up Christopher Lee. We brought up Gary Oldman. We brought up Max Schreck. We, talk, we brought up, you know, we didn't talk about Klaus, Klaus Ginski and Herzog's remake of uh, Nosferatu, but, um, you know, that's that's another variation of it that is you know it's it's a very distinctive variation and it you know the the thing that's interesting about Herzog's version is the fact that it's very clearly an adaptation a remake of the Murnau film but because of the film that the fact that the novel was in public domain at the time he was able to use the actual character names. And yes. so that distinct that that distinction with it really makes it unique and really starts to bridge Nosferatu back into the realm of being a Dracula of thinking about in terms of Dracula adaptations as well. Sure. But yeah. Uh, Phil, thank you very much once again for uh, time. It's always great to 
talk to you. It's great to talk to you about some really fascinating horror movies and some fascinating subjects as always. And if I can just do a quick plug here. So we did have a discussion planned on three movies from Joseph Cotton that Joseph Cotton started in that kind of got pushed off because of certain things going on with Brian and I, but if you're a fan of Sonic cinema podcast, you can expect that conversation sometime down the line. And I'm sure it'll be fascinating as it is always when we get together. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that discussion because there are a couple movies and there's one in particular that I haven't seen in ages. And there are two that I haven't <laughs> seen at all. And I'm looking forward to, uh, watching those movies at last. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we'll we'll get back to horror next year as well. But this year, I mean, we wanted to do something different. I really enjoyed the uh, fact that we were able to with this is a really good lead in to it. All right, Brian, thank you so much for having me as always, my friend. I'd like to thank Phil once again for uh, joining me. It's always great to talk to him. And this was a... This was a discussion that I really enjoyed having and was really excited to have with him. Uh, talking about horror and classic cinema from a different angle. Um, that's going to be it for this episode of the Song Cinema Podcast. And uh, once again, go to Bandcamp to pre-order my uh, album, The Cold Wind of Horror, or order it whenever you're listening to this. That is at brianscuttle.bandcamp.com. Come up until November 2nd, 2023. Use the promo code Horror Music to get 15% off your purchase. Click subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, check out patreon.com backslash Sonicsima. I did talk about the invisible ghost uh, in the episode with When it Comes to Bella Lugosi. I've got Leaving the Collection episode on that movie in the Patreon. So I hope you check that out. And then obviously uh, continue to watch for reviews at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you very much for your patience as I acclimate to my new work schedule. And my next October horror-themed episode is going to be very exciting. I'm going to have a first-time guest on, and we're going to be talking about horror from a uh, country that may not necessarily get the love that uh, it deserves when it comes to horror films, but that will be a discussion for another time. Thank you very much, and as always, check me out at www.sonic-cinema.com. <laughs>
Thank you. 